Man, I am both honored and super excited to be here tonight. <laughs> like, like whenever I get the chance to speak at a church, I, I, really, I really feel honored that, that someone would give up the pulpit to let someone else like me come in and share, but even more so, I think, in this church. Like, I, I, I listened to your message last week, and man, I just felt the weight of God all over that message. And I'm like, oh boy, Jesus, here we go. <laughs> but I, I do believe I have a message. Um, man, first, first time I ever shared this message, I like almost couldn't make it through it. Like, God was, like, it's one thing when you're reading it, and like God's hitting you with the word, and then it's another thing when you're sharing it, and you just, I don't know, you, you like, it's like an extra, like, woo, like, wow, God, I cannot believe. Like, it, to receive something is one thing. To teach something, it goes even deeper inside of you. Amen. And so I pray that this word would drive deep, deeper and deeper even into my own soul. Um, so before I begin, let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you for just such an awesome opportunity. I know we already prayed for this. But God, I want to honor you right now. And I want to say, God, let nothing be about to worry here tonight. Let nothing... Be about, about this guy. I pray that everything would be about Jesus Christ. I pray that you would be glorified. You would be lifted high. And that Jesus, through us lifting you high, that God, you would be exalted higher and higher and higher. Jesus, we thank you. And God, I pray that every word that is of you would be remembered. And every word that is of me would be forgotten. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, let's go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. For those who don't know me, I am Justin's friend. He's an awesome guy. And I think I came here in 2015. I think it was about then. And man, I just really, I, I just knew there was a special connection between us. And it's been a little bit. But I'm back, and I work as a missionary in Tanzania. I, I love Jesus. I love seeing Jesus enter other people's lives. And thus, I love doing missionary work. And so, yeah, just if you remember anything in prayer, just I've been single for 31 years in my life, and so I'm kind of used to my singleness. And so I pray that the Lord breaks me, but in a gentle way. <laughs> Because I, I know, oh man, I know what's coming, kind of, because I've seen my parents, but I yet don't have any idea, and I'm a fool. So just pray for me that this fool becomes more like Jesus. Anyways, okay. Um, so we're, let's do Matthew 7, starting in verse 24. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. I love the New Living Translation. I visit churches all the time. And the pastor's like, the pastor's like, well, you see what it's really trying to say in the reading from other translations is this, 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 and this. I was like, well, you could have just read my Bible. <laughs> Joking. Um, okay. <laughs> Here we go. Starting in verse 24. Anyone who listens to my teachings and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds a house on a solid rock. 
Though the rain comes in torrents and floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it will not collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teachings and doesn't obey is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come, the wind beats against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their, their teachers of the religious law. Jesus, this is the end of the Sermon of the Mount. This little message here is both prophetic and it is a real, it is a, like he ends his message on this. When Jesus speaks about this, he says, you listen to my teachings and obey it. You are building on a solid rock. At the same time, in Jerusalem, they are building a temple on a solid rock that they thought was immovable. And yet, because they did not align with the person of Jesus Christ, that house crashed with a mighty crash. We're Actually, this is not the passage that I'm going to be in for most of tonight. But I wanted to open it up with that. When we build our lives on Jesus, we're building on a firm foundation. In Mark chapter 11, verse 11, it says, So Jesus came to the temple. This is right after um, Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. It says, Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the twelve disciples. I'm going to skip down to verse 15, but I'm coming back to the fig tree. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, this is the next day, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, The scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. In almost every Jesus film, in almost every Jesus movie, okay, the dozens of them that there are, they almost always portray Jesus coming into the temple all happy from the triumphant entry, and then his face turns when he sees the money changers and immediately he starts throwing tables. But that's not how it went down. This was Jesus saw everything the day before, but knowing it was too late in the day, said, I'll be back. He came into the temple with a premeditated plan. In John it says he made a whip. Okay? He might have made it the night before. He might have, we don't, like, in John it doesn't say, but Jesus came in prepared to wreck the temple. Jesus was ready to overthrow everything that was. It wasn't something that he simply reacted to. 
It was a part of his purpose and plan returning the next day to Jerusalem. It, to me, that is amazing. That Jesus, not, not, in, not in, an, in a moment of anger, but in a decisive move, puts an end to something he saw as evil. We many times think, when we think about the temple, we oftentimes think of it as something that's been accomplished. But even at the time of Jesus, it was still being built. The crazy thing is, they kept, they kept building around the edges of it and kept expanding it. And Herod was doing a lot of this in order to appease the Jewish people so they wouldn't riot and rebel against Rome. And he kept building to it and growing it and making it more and more extravagant and awesome. Where this scene took place, we don't exactly know, but it's most likely that it took place in the court of the Gentiles. We look at, you. we have the Holy of Holies, we have the Jewish court, we have the court of the Gentiles, and we had many other courts around it. Most likely, it was not in the court of the Jews. It would, the court of Jews is much smaller. And it would have not, it would not have been able to host all of the animals and business tables, etc. that was in the building at that time. If you look at, if you look at even further on in the New Testament, Paul is accused of bringing a Gentile into the Jewish court. And they want to kill him for that. So there was, there was all these courts, but there were very strict rules on where you could and couldn't worship. And if this did take place in the court of the Gentiles, and Jesus makes this statement in the court of the Gentiles, it says a lot, one, about Jesus, and two, about the people. Let's start with the people. If this took place in the court of the Gentiles, which it most likely did, it shows that the people began to have a disregard for the worship of other nations. This isn't something that just happened. This is something years and years of becoming, of ignoring their call to reach the nations. Decades, centuries of them ignoring their call to reach the nations. They come to a place where they no longer see the worship of other people as important. They care about their worship. And they're doing everything possible to make their worship setting more convenient, more comfortable, and more expedient. They are ignoring God's purpose for the temple. Think about that. They're expanding the temple, but not for the purposes of God. They're expanding the temple to appease humans. They are expanding the temple so that the Jewish people might have a place where they can worship their tribal deity. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. That is not the purpose of this temple. If Jesus comes into the court of the Gentiles and says, says these words, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. 
Jesus, one, cares very much about our motives for what we do in our worship services. Second, Jesus is very concerned with the nations. Think about this too. On the day of Pentecost, how many people, were is it only people from Jerusalem that were there? No. It was people from all over the earth. In fact, in many, many translations it says the people from, from the entire world were in Jerusalem. And, uh, and so we know that many tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people came to Jerusalem from other nations. Not just Jewish born people, but many converts to Judaism. And they came there and on the day of Pentecost we see what God does through the apostles in bringing people from all these nations to God. So it's not that people from other nations aren't coming to Jerusalem to worship God. It's not that, they, that these Gentile believers can enter the Jewish courts. Have you ever been in a church service and all of a sudden a baby starts to cry? Have you ever been in a church service where the baby keeps crying? And then you start thinking, when is that mama going to take her baby to the nursery? Have you ever thought those thoughts? Okay. Now, it's because sometimes when we're trying to listen to what God is saying, and when we're trying to be in an attitude of worship, it can very, be very easy to be distracted by other things. And if they made the court of the Gentiles into a marketplace with total disregard to their prayers being offered to God among the bleeding of the lambs, among the, the, the noise. Think about that when we get distracted by just a baby. Now imagine getting distracted by a marketplace. And it's not that these people aren't coming. Think about that. Think this picture of all these nations trying to pack in to this area. And around them trying to pray, there's all this commotion. Is your, is your, is the guarding of your faith causing chaos in the life of other people? Are you Do you care about the worship of other people? The unhindered worship of other people. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 56. Because that's what Jesus is quoting directly from. I want to start actually at the very beginning of Isaiah chapter 56 verse 1. Okay? Okay. This is what the Lord says. Are you ready? <laughs> Be just and fair to all. That is how I, what Jesus is quoting from, which we're going to get to in a little bit. It starts, this chapter starts with this. Be just and fair to all. When Jesus came into the temple, he noticed that what the, 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 the worship practices of his people were not just and fair to all people. 
Do what is right and good, for I am coming soon to rescue you and to display my righteousness among you. Blessed are those who are careful to do this. Blessed are those who honor my Sabbath day of rest and keep themselves from doing wrong. Don't let foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord say, The Lord will never let me be a part of his people. I can only imagine the people in the temple from other nations wondering if they would ever be an equal amongst God's people. I wonder what they thought as they're trying to worship God and the people of God who are the elect, who consider themselves the elect, are disregarding their worship for the convenience of their own worship. What do you think? Will God ever let me be a part of His people? Because God says be just and fair to all because He knows there are people around the world that are asking that very question. Will God ever let me be a part of His elect? Verse 6. I will also bless the foreigners, foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, who serve Him and love His name, who worship Him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest, who hold fast to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. For the sovereign Lord who brings back the outcasts of Israel says, I will bring others to besides my people Israel. And Isaiah 49.6, he says, You will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles and will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. For it is too small of a thing for the Lord to save Israel alone. I will bring others too. What is it like if we let's think about the tabernacle. The purpose of the tabernacle was what? To house what? God's presence. And wherever the people went, the presence of God was with them and led them. Fire by night, cloud by day. When the nation is established, there is a permanent, I mean, for many years there isn't, but eventually a permanent structure is erected to, to, to represent God's presence amongst His people. And, when, on, uh, uh, and then in the Holy of Holies, on that special day, God's presence would reside so strongly that only one person could enter. And... This is where the presence of God is. This is where the presence of God rests. In all the earth, this is where the presence of God is concentrated. And because God wants His presence to be available for all peoples, He makes available that house of prayer to be a house of prayer for all nations, that all nations might go to that place and worship and pray to God. Um, let's go to, let's go to actually, uh, John chapter two. Okay. In, in Mark, it talks about the Jewish leaders being so angry with him that they wanted to kill him. But because they were afraid of the people who were in awe by, by the authority that Jesus spoke, they were afraid to lay hands on them. Okay. Later on in the, in Mark, 
After Jesus leaves Jerusalem, comes back the next day, they ask, by what authority do you have to do this? Jesus asked, by what authority did John baptize? Okay? In John, the book of John, it says, but the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you the, the authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. What they exclaimed, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, you can, you, and you can build it in three days. But Jesus said, this temple, he meant his own body. After Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. So you have a picture of Jesus. Let's go back to Matthew, okay? said, if you listen to my words and obey them, you are building on a rock. If you don't, you are building like people who are building on sand and it will crash. Jesus says, destroy this temple. Referring to himself being the temple. So we have Jesus, the real temple, the embodiment of the presence of God on this earth, standing in the temple, okay, which originally was supposed to house that presence of God, but eventually became a, a symbol of pride to the people. And you have what the people are trying to raise up, a temple to God. And you have what God has raised up from the beginning of time where His presence is dwelling from all of time in that body. Standing one temple inside of the other temple. One temple looking so much greater at the time, but yet minuscule compared to the temple inside of that temple. Okay? Jesus is there saying destroy this temple. But let's go back to Isaiah. Mm. How do I want to do this? Yes, let's go back to Isaiah. Okay? Isaiah, but this time in chapter 66, starting at the beginning. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne. Okay? This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? My hands have made both heaven and earth and everything in them are mine. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, many times we'll read the Old Testament, right? And we'll read it by itself. And then we'll read the New Testament and we'll read it by itself. And so what we do is we'll read that and be like, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? My hands have made both heaven and earth then everything in them are mine. Okay, so I guess we can never build something as good as God is building. Okay? And we'll sit there, we'll ponder it, and we'll think about it. But think about this. The people are attempting to build a magnificent temple, which they think is going to honor God. But here's something about the temple at that time. It was one of the most corrupt places in all of Israel. If you look at the war between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, between the liberals and the conservatives, okay? Literally, it's liberal, it's like liberal Christianity and fundamentalist Christianity colliding, okay? But 
Judaism, okay? <laughs> and you have this colliding. The high priests are incre- the high priest is incredibly corrupt. All the priesthood is incredibly corrupt. The purpose of the temple of being a house of prayer for all nations is now a marketplace. Everything the temple was supposed to be is being ignored. Think about this. They were not satisfied with the Holy of Holies. They had to keep adding to that and keep building extravagantly beyond where the center point was. Almost to distracting us, distract us from the Holy of Holies. So we have Jesus in the temple that people are trying to build. And Isaiah says, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Could you ever build me a temple as good as that? The answer is no. There is nothing we can create that can rival creation. But inside of this pathetic temple that the people are trying to build for the glory of God is sitting the temple of God that God himself built, which rivals all of creation, is in the temple. So we have pathetic temple (laughs) surrounding the magnificent temple, which is Jesus Christ. Here's the amazing thing. Oh, actually, let me get back. Let me, I, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Now. <laughs> Jesus, help me. <sighs> okay. First Peter. Chapter 2, verse 4. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual into his spiritual temple. Okay? Let me stop right there. Remember, the temple is being built on the Temple Mount, a solid rock. A legit solid rock. And what are they building the temple with? Other stones. Smaller stones, hewn from the earth. Okay, Jesus says that if you build your life on me, you are like someone who's building on the rock. First, Pe- First Peter goes right back to that. Not only Jesus, like a cornerstone. Okay, we have cor- like people would find either one huge rock to build their whole house on, or find huge rocks that they'd sink into the earth, dig a huge massive pit, sink it in. So that way they could build the rest of their foundation on that. Jesus is a cornerstone that rivals the Temple Mount. We are living stones that God is building into His spiritual temple. Think about this. Every stone you see on this earth, at one point, however many thousands of years ago, okay, originally came from a bigger stone. And the further and the more the elements beat against those rocks, big or small, it continues to crumble. Why? Because anything left by itself will degrade. What is that? What, 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 it's like a law of... Thank you. Okay. That anything left unto itself will continue to break down. So Jesus is saying that the church... 
are these little rocks that originated from Him. Okay? But have broken down smaller and smaller and smaller. And if we look at our world today, our world continues to become more and more and more fractured. Our lives without Jesus become more and more and more fractured. Sand, and let's think about sand. Little pieces of sand. Jesus, I mean, God told Abraham, your descendants will be more than what? The sands of the seashore. But all sand is, is minuscule, little remnants of what used to be a rock. Now, I love this. You are living stones that God is building into a spiritual temple. So we've got the rock, the foundation, which is Jesus. What holds these rocks together? Some, in some places, they're just simply carved and set on top of one another. As if the maker made them to be set on top of one another and to be joined together. You in this church have been appointed by God to be hewn and set together. And for those rocks that aren't, that maybe it doesn't look like they were carved and hewn to be put together, there's something we call mortar that, that, that builders use to connect broken pieces of rock or brick or whatever we're using and binds it together. And that is what God is doing through His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the mortar which builds all these pieces that seem to be discarded pieces of rock together into His holy church. I am placing... Oh, sorry. Through the meditation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor. Anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust in him recognize the honor God has given him. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. Jesus walks into the temple. By the mercy of God, some people recognize him. And by the hardness of some other people's hearts, they do not recognize him. Because every time God comes into the buildings we have made for ourselves, he gives us a choice to either trust in what looks so much less appealing at the moment, but yet so much more glorious. Or to continue living and building our own kingdom that will eventually be destroyed. Think about it. Like 40 years after Jesus is standing in that temple, literally the, the, the temple is burned. The temple is smashed. And because the gold that was in the temple ran between the cracks, of the of the of the the rocks that were in the temple the romans continued to tear those rocks apart until like jesus prophesied not one stone that is on top of another will remain on top of another 
Because the Romans were looking for the gold that was melted into the cracks. They fulfilled the prophecies of Jesus Christ. The thing that the people thought was so glorious would become simply a raider's, a raider's sight. And what makes, this is the crazy thing, what, what, makes, what, makes, what makes Jesus so scary is that when at first glance, he almost never looks as glorious as their own achievements. Why? Because when we, when we are invested in our own achievements, whatever you're invested in, you will always think is glorious. But the glorious thing is when we let go of what we think is amazing for something that looks so humble and something so unappealing by every world's standards. That's why Jesus is the stumbling block, the rock that people trip over. Then I love this. But you are not like that. For you are God's chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation. God's very own possession. That's Exodus chapter 19. You have been called to be a nation of priests. God's very own possession. As a result, you can show the others the goodness of God, for He calls you out of the darkness into His wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you, have, you, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. I'm going to actually skip ahead. And I'm going to go back. Let's go back to let's go back to Mark. Now, I read this passage of Jesus clearing the temple in between two very key passages. And there's a reason in Mark that the clearing of the temple is sandwiched between the cursing of the fig tree. So Jesus, so yeah, so Jesus came to Jerusalem, going back to verse 11, and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon and he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf, a little ways off. So he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat of your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. This is kind of a funny thing because like Jesus knows it's not the season for figs, right? He knows it. But yet he still goes over to check because it looks like that tree ought to have fruit. The same with mangoes. In Africa, like sometimes you know, oh, mango season's a little ways off. But then you see a tree and you're like, oh, that tree looks like it might have mangoes on it. So you start looking at the tree and you're searching it, searching it. Ah, no mangoes. And you kind of walk away disappointed. You're like, oh, it's not the season. 
But Jesus uses it. Not so, he's not so angry at the fig tree. Okay? He uses the fig tree as an example of what he's about to do to the temple. The temple was in full leaf. It looked as if it ought to be bearing fruit. Because it's glorious. It's in full leaf. The nations, many of the nations are coming to the temple. But there's no fruit that is being born from the temple. Have you ever thought like how unfair it is that uh, like God accepted Cain, like Abel's sacrifice and didn't accept Cain's? Have you ever thought that? Like, it's not like God was like, okay, um, I want only a lamb. He just, they just offered sacrifices to God. And God's like, accepted, not accepted. God desires something to be a certain way. And we, when we get it wrong, can either humble ourselves and say, okay, God, I'm sorry, that wasn't the sacrifice you wanted. Hold on one second. Let me fix that. Or out of jealousy, we can kill our brother because he's offering right sacrifices and I'm offering sacrifices that God doesn't want. But instead of making it look like I'm the problem, I kill my brother because he's making me really look like I'm the problem. So Jesus... Curses the fig tree. Then after the, after the passage, Jesus is clearing the temple. Okay, It says, The next morning, as they passed by the fig tree, he had cursed. The disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Malachi. Sorry, guys, I'm going through a lot of scripture here, but I'm trying to build a picture. Okay? Malachi chapter 3. The last book of the Old Testament, and my favorite book of the Old Testament. Okay. This is so freaking scary. Look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal, or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver, so they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. Then once more the Lord will accept the offerings brought to him by the people of Judah and Jerusalem as he did, as they did, as he did in the past. At that time I will put you on trial. I am eager to witness against all sorcerers, adulterers, and liars, I will speak against those who cheat employees of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, and listen to this, and who deprive the foreigners living amongst them of the justice 
uh, uh, of justice, for these people do not fear me, says the Lord of heaven's armies. What happens before Jesus comes into the temple and looks around to see what's going on? The triumphant entry. The one they are seeking. They're yelling Messiah. They're yelling, blessed is the son of David. They are, they are seeking the Messiah. But not in the way that Jesus thought wanted to be, wanted to be sought. And then it said, it said in Malachi, okay, the, the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. And we would think this is such a glorious thing. Such a, such a wonderful thing that the, that the one, the messenger is in the temple. But then it says, but who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? How many times in the New Testament is the, is the, does it say that the, that the religious leaders could not face Jesus? They would question him and Jesus would answer. And they sat there as people who couldn't even face him. The scariest thing about the coming of Jesus is that everybody who was the people of God didn't recognize that God was there. Jesus is born, lives, dies, fulfills what God called him to do, and more than 99% of the world didn't even know that God appeared on earth. That's the scariest thing about God. Because he came in a way that nobody expected, And when he came in a way that nobody expected, he came and judged the hearts of men without them ever knowing they were being judged. That is what is incredibly scary about Jesus. Because it's not just then, it's even today. Every single thing we do, Jesus is judging our hearts. And what things we didn't even recognize was a trial or a test Jesus has put there as a trial and a test. To test, what are we seeking? Who are we seeking? What are we building? What are we making out of our lives? Do we have a preconceived thought of how God ought to come and then miss Him when He does? Have we built a temple that we think is suitable for God? And God's saying, you missed the whole picture? We oftentimes get so excited about God moments. And then we come to church just just ready to like have that moment. And we're so excited about it. And then we're like, nothing happened. It's because you're seeking God moments and not Jesus. You're seeking the thrill that Jesus gives you instead of the person of Jesus Christ. And then we always think that the God moment is happening in here. When Jesus is calling us to be just and fair to all people. People out there who don't even recognize we're not being just and fair to them. 
Jesus wants them to know him. And we can't, we gotta, we kind of talked about this at lunch, that we need to teach everyone and let faithfulness prove who are the true disciples of Jesus Christ. And stop playing God about who should I share the gospel with. Is, is this who I'm supposed to share it with? Just share it with everybody and God will prove whether or not that person will respond or not. We don't know who the elect are in the world. God has preordained, literally from the beginning of time, who will be saved and who will not be saved. He knows, but we don't. But we pretend like this group of people deserves the gospel because they'll respond. And this group of people, well, I don't know how they're going to respond, so I'll just avoid them. We, the Jews did it with the Samaritans and we do it with Muslims. We do it with Hindus. We do it with Buddhists. And unless somebody looks like me, talks like me, we don't believe we can reach them. Like I remember when we were in New York, I would, we would go and do, this is, I mean, when I was like young, I, rem- I learned this lesson early on in, in evangelism. The person you think is going to come to Jesus is almost always the person who tries to tear you to pieces. And the person that looks like he's going to tear your head off is the one that Jesus invades with his Holy Spirit. Like the guy that's got gauges and piercings and tattoos from head to foot and looks like he's going to bash your head in if you mention Jesus will bawl like a baby because he's ready for Jesus. And the person that you're like, well, this guy might be a great person to come to our church, has decided in his heart he'll never serve Jesus. But we need to be faithful to share the gospel with all people. And those God moments that sometimes we're seeking at the altar, God is saying, I'm seeking for them to be out there. And sometimes we're offering vegetables to God when God is looking for lambs to be slain. Do you catch that? Sometimes we think this offering that I have worked so hard for that I think is delicious, that kind of fits my personality and my career is what Jesus wants. She's like, no, you missed it. That's not what I want. I want this. So Jesus comes and he sees the fig tree and he expects fruit to be in it. He comes to the temple and there's a certain thing he wants to see in the temple because it's been prophesied, it's been ordained by God. And when that thing that these people trusted in so highly is so antithetical to what God wants, Jesus says, it's cursed. Like this fig tree that's bearing no fruit, this temple I am entering is not the house of God. It's a den of thieves and robbers. Yeah. Think about that. The, the temple is supposed to be where the presence of God dwells. And what's dwelling in the, presen- in, in, in the house of God? Men with selfish ambition. There is nothing that drives the presence of God out faster than selfish ambition. There is nothing that will hold back the tides of God's glory than selfish ambition. 
nothing on this earth. If you are trying to, and especially if we are trying to advance ourselves by adding the gospel to our life, so our life will somehow be so much better than if it wasn't with Jesus. Jesus is not a condiment that we add to our sushi. <laughs> Jesus is not soy sauce that we dip our sushi in so our, it tastes better. Jesus is a completely different smorgasbord that he has set up. Okay, it's, it's not that we add Jesus to what we're already eating. It's what we get rid of the diet we used to consume and we start consuming something completely different and we become consumed by Jesus. That's the difference. And, and if you are thinking you're going to add Jesus as a condiment, that's simply an American dream. <laughs> that is not the scriptures. Let's go. Now, how do I know this is talking about Jesus? How do I know that Malachi is talking about Jesus? Because in chapter 4, okay, verse 5, it says, Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. We often think of the great and dreadful day of the Lord as that final judgment. But there's, there's, a great, there's another great and dreadful day of the Lord. And it's the coming of Jesus Christ. His, and, and this is talking about the one who will come as the prophet Elijah. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Luke is the book of Luke is so specific that John the Baptist fulfills it. It is unquestionable. But, and here's the thing, okay? Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. So in chapter 3, it says, the one you're seeking will suddenly appear in the temple. Who will be able to face him? And he's going to purify the whole system like fire burning gold, like a, like, like, a, like a detergent, cleaning a garment, bleaching it. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with the curse. So we have the Messiah in the temple, the messenger in the temple, and we have this curse. Parallel with Mark, but not only that, verse 1 of chapter 4, the Lord of heaven's army says, the day of judgment is coming, burning like a furnace. On that day, the arrogant and wicked will be burned up like straw. They will be consumed, roots, branches, and all. What is the thing that the disciples notice about the fig tree when they return the next day? That it had withered from the roots on up. Branches and everything was withered. We go back to Malachi. But why does God want the metals to be refined? Why does God want to bleach the clothes? Why is it so that he might purify the Levites? Who are the Levites? The priests. What does a priest do? He's a mediator between the people and God, and between God and the people. And in First Peter, which we have already read, 
Okay? It says, what's more, you are his holy priests. Chapter 2, verse 5. In this living temple, which is Jesus Christ, through the meditation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. Okay. You are a chosen people, royal priests, a holy nation. So even to this day, you and I were all priests mediating between God in the world and the world in God. We have our high priest who's the final mediator who makes us pure and clean and declares cleanliness on those who call out to him. And who are humble and contrite in heart like in Isaiah 66. But we are each priests mediating what God is trying to say to the earth, preaching the gospel, mediating for people on uh, on behalf of people before God, offering prayers over their lives, preaching the gospel and prayers of intercession for other people. Think about that. Preaching, interceding, preaching, interceding. I preach, I see things don't go the way that I, that I know God wants it to go. I continue to intercede. After interceding for those people, I go back and I preach to those people. And it, I keep doing that and I keep doing that until I see them become a living stone in the temple of God. That is what God is calling me to do. Mediator between God And God is working through His Holy Spirit already. It's not like I'm doing everything. The Holy Spirit is doing the majority of the work. But I am agreeing as a priest in knowing the will of God and seeing the depravity of humanity, seeing how heaven wants, how heaven ought to be on earth and seeing how far the earth is from heaven and crying out as a mediator standing between those two places. Standing on the borderline, trying to unite what seems like two enemy countries. Knowing full well that God will change it. But here's back to in Malachi, okay. It says this. Why is God purifying the Levites? like gold and silver, so they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. Then once more the Lord will accept the offerings brought to him by the people of Judah in Jerusalem as he did in the past. And in in First Peter, it says this. It says, Through meditation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. Amen. Without Jesus coming and purifying, there was no sacrifice, no offering, nothing that could ever please God. And for those who have been purified and who have become Levites and priests in this new temple, every offering, every sacrifice we offer to God in humility and of contrite hearts, is accepted by God, okay? Because he no longer sees us, he sees Jesus. I am before Jesus and I'm saying, here's my sacrifice. I'm doing everything because I love you. 
And Jesus says, I love it. I love what you're doing. There are definitely some things that we do which are, seem completely contrary to what God wants. And in and of itself, it would be completely rejected by God. But here's the thing. Sometimes we do things out of selfish ambition, thinking we're doing it for Jesus when we're really doing it for ourselves. And Jesus is patient with us. He's kind with us. When Jesus returned to heaven, where did the disciples go back to to worship God? Back to the temple. The corrupt, broken system. He allowed them to continue worshiping and offering sacrifices in that temple, even though it was corrupt. Because he didn't, God doesn't just take us from here to there with no bridge across. Sometimes he allows broken bridges to transport armies across it. And he takes us from this place that we thought was awesome. He takes us across that bridge by his power and puts us in a new land. He splits the waters so we can walk through the Jordan. And when we get to that other side, we look back and we're like, wow, that was selfish of me. But God, by his grace, takes what we thought we were doing for him and then later recognized was pretty selfish why we did it. And he still works with us all along the way. Think about this. How many of you, when you got saved, got saved because you were like, crap, I don't want to go to hell? <laughs> like, how many of you when, you, were, when you first came to Jesus, it wasn't so much about Jesus. It was like, oh man, I don't want to go through that. I don't want, and we don't, even, we don't even think about this. We don't even think about, I don't want to be eternally separated from God. We just think, I don't want to burn in the fires of hell for all of eternity. And so we're like, Jesus, save me. Literally, save me, Jesus. God, I give my life to you. Save me. And then we go along in our life, and we realize, the reason I don't want to go to hell isn't even so much because of the fires of hell. You recognize early on as a new believer, that's terrible. But as a deeper, the deeper you get with Jesus, the very fact that you might not be in the presence of God for all of eternity drives you to your knees to say, thank you, Jesus. Even though I didn't get saved, maybe for out of the right motives, maybe I got saved for very carnal and selfish reasons, I still came to you and you accepted my prayers as, acceptable as an acceptable sacrifice. You offered petitions because you humbled yourself and you said, God, I don't know the way. I just don't want that to happen. So Jesus, please come into my life. Please transform my life. Make me a child of yours. And as we go along, but then we have Paul, who's at like the zenith, the total opposite end of let me never go to hell. Paul's like, if me going to hell for all of eternity means that my Jewish brothers might come to Jesus, if, the, if, if they could get, all, if, if you could do a miracle, if we could barter where my life was exchanged for the Jewish people, I would gladly go to hell if they could get to heaven. That's on the whole other side. 
Now, I, Paul probably didn't start there. <laughs> if you look at Paul and his ministry, he had a heart for the Jewish people. And then, ah, forget these guys. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Forget these guys. But somewhere deep down inside of him, the people who persecuted him, who rejected him, who hated him, because of the message he preached, he said, you know what? I'm willing to go to hell that my enemies might go to heaven. That is crazy. Guys, I believe that every single one of us can offer pure and acceptable sacrifices to Jesus because Jesus made that a possibility. He made it a possibility, guys. Like, no matter what we did apart from Jesus, we could never please God. No matter what we built, no matter what sort of temple we made, it would be completely unworthy of the presence of God. But because of Jesus took it all on his back. Think about it. When we, when we build a temple on a rock, that means that solid rock on the bottom has to take all the weight of the rocks on top. Literally, Jesus shoulders the weight of everything we lay on him. Everything we put on him. Every person that's added to the kingdom, all the weight on him. Fully forgiven. And given a right standing, a right foundation by which he can put his presence and his spirit in such a way that it's an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed. A temple that will never lose its glory. And by his spirit, we can offer pure and acceptable sacrifices in this temple. Where even though I'm broken, I'm jacked up, I am so screwed up in my head, I can come back to Jesus every day and say, Jesus, continue. I am made righteous. The moment I am saved, I am made righteous and becoming more righteous. I am made righteous, completely, completely cleansed. So that way my prayers might be accepted. Jesus said to the woman at the well, he said, it doesn't matter if you worship on this mountain or on that mountain, but those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. The spirit, the spirit is the Holy Spirit. The truth is Jesus Christ. And every rival mountain that stands up to the mount, which is Jesus Christ, will be shattered. Literally in Jerusalem, you have the two mountains. You have the Temple Mount, and you have the Mount of Olives. Two almost rival little mountains next to each other, right? What happens to that other mountain? When Jesus comes down to this earth, it is split. Every foundation, every other mountain Everything on this earth that rivals Jesus, when he returns, will be shattered completely. Guys, I, 
in conjunction with that, that message that you shared last week um, about persecution, one thing that I'm learning is that persecution is always what happens when a broken world responds to the perfectness of Jesus Christ. When lies are confronted by truth, when darkness is expelled by light. Now many of us will oftentimes lift up persecution as if persecution in and of itself is glorious. The glorious thing about persecution is this, is it gives us, the church, a chance to show how glorious what he has done inside of us can trump that persecution. Amen. Jesus came into the temple, established a new thing. We are all a part of this living temple. And when death rivals the living temple and tries to tear apart at the stones and break it down and mess it up, It'll always be rebuilt by the power of God because that Holy Spirit which binds us together, more will be slapped on and more mortar will be made and more stones will be brought. A wall that's torn down, that looks like it's torn down, you know what's going to happen? A new wing is going to be added with more stones, more glorious than ever before. But at the center of it all is that holy place. Jesus Christ. The foundation of it all, guys, is Jesus Christ himself. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have God's mercy. Outside of Christ, I have no identity. A single rock, a single piece of sand in and of itself, has no real identity. But when that rock, that sand, is mixed with the mortar, hewn, and put into the temple, it's given identity. Why? Because it's a part of the temple. It's no longer a single shard of rock out there by itself, rejected and being beaten by the weather. It's solid. The reason I preach this message, you know why I preach this message? Because I didn't want to come in here being like, oh, where's the fruit? Every conversation I've had with you guys, all I hear is fruit. I see missionaries that you send to Indonesia. I see people who are going out and planting churches. I want to say this. So many times we'll come in as a guest speaker and really go hard. And too often times we challenge and we don't celebrate. I've challenged you guys to this point. And if some of you feel like, oh, where's the fruit from my life? There are certain individuals in this church, you are learning so much in this church and you are growing so much in this church, but yet there isn't a lot of fruit being produced from your life. You've come into full leaf, but Jesus is now saying bear fruit. Okay? 
there are those in that church where that is for you. And this challenge is for you. But what I want to say about this church is as a whole, you are bearing fruit. And I want to bear witness that when I look at you, all I see is fruit. I see in your heart and desire for the nations is incredible. If some of you are getting discouraged, you're, we can do more, we want to do more, we want to see God move more. Yes, always have that heart. But be encouraged because all I see is fruit. Paul said, be ready in and out of season. What was he referring to? Jesus passing by the fig tree. At any moment, be ready to bear fruit. At any moment, be ready to be used by God. I see that in you guys. Don't ever lose that. When I, when, and some of you, you, you've been to this church year after year after year. And you wonder if the sacrifices you're giving to Jesus are acceptable. Like, are you hearing me, Jesus? Do you not see that I love you? Jesus is so far ahead. He is your champion. He is loving you. He is so excited about what he is doing inside of you. Don't, don't beat yourself up because oh, I'm not like so and so. Are you like Jesus? Amen. Don't, just, don't just be like, oh, this guy's got this and this and this going on in his life. Oh, I wish I could be like that pastor. I wish I could be like this elder. I wish I could be like that person. Stop looking at what they're doing and just look at Jesus. Ask him, what do you want from my life? And if you're going through a season where you're sowing, 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 and you're having to prove to be faithful for 10 years, like we were talking about before, before you see fruit, be faithful to that. Because as God builds you and develops you, and as he purifies you, and as he burns you, and as he bleaches you, more and more and more and more, those sacrifices that you give him will be more fruitful, will be more pleasing, will be more awesome. But it's not like what you're doing right now isn't. He's making it even more fruitful, even more pleasing. Like, we talked about this at lunchtime. Sometimes you go to a restaurant and you think, this is the benchmark. This is top ramen right here. <laughs> this is what it is. And then you think, and you're, and you're, and you're, and then after a while it starts to get kind of like, if you had a dish too long and you get used to it, you stop realizing how glorious it is. Right? And then you go to another restaurant and you're reminded of the glory, but in a different way? Like, now that's the new benchmark. Sometimes, like, tandoori chicken. I love tandoori chicken. But sometimes I can OD on tandoori chicken, where I'm smelling tandoori everywhere. But then I'll, like, okay, I need to ease up on tandoori. But I revisit tandoori, and I'm like, why did I ever leave it? <laughs> Some of you guys, like, you're, you, 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 some of you, God's spoken something so strongly to you, 
And you were so about it that you reeked of it. And then you started feeling like you're a little bit too extreme in this area, so you back off. But there's some of you that God's reminding you even tonight of those visions that he's given you. And you're like, why did I ever leave it? This is awesome. This is delicious. (laughs) I wanted to remind some of you about that tonight. Others of you, maybe you just feel out of place. Here's the craziest thing about us, is that we come into the church broken, right? Then we start, our lives start changing, and it starts getting awesome. And then all of a sudden we're like, do I really need to go to church today? Do I really need to be around other? I'll skip this week, and you skip next week, and you skip, and you skip it. And you start, and what happens is when we stop, For just a minute, we start becoming more and more distant, more and more distant. And then we're like, why is my life falling apart? Why does everything suck? Why is this like this? And Jesus is like, why did you ever leave my presence? Why did you ever leave the fellowship? But why do we leave fellowship? Because sometimes somebody challenges us and we didn't like that challenge. And so then we're like, oh, you know, I'd rather not. I'd rather not be challenged. I'd rather not feel tight. At, you know, like after you go to the gym and you start realizing how unathletic you are compared to everybody else, you're like, ah, I'll skip next. I'll skip today. I don't feel like it. And then you're like, why am I so out of shape? Why do I feel so heavy? And then she's like, well, you have a membership <laughs> that you're paying for that I paid for and you're not using. (laughs) Some of you don't recognize how awesome it is to be a part of the body of Christ. Many of you do. And I see that all over your faces, all over your worship, all over your interactions with other people. But there are some of you who even tonight feel like you're on the fringes. And you're like, what, church? Is it really all that great? Am I really getting all, uh, am I really benefiting from this? Jesus died for you. Not so that way you could just benefit. So that way through him working and changing you, you might be a blessing and a benefit to everybody else that's in this body. I've gone for a while, guys. But I want you to get that picture of Jesus. Is he standing in our midst? The glorious temple. And I said, well, the scariest thing about Jesus is that he was amongst them and they didn't even recognize it. What's even more scary about than, than Jesus in their midst is the Holy Spirit in ours. He's literally in us. We are literally drenched in the Holy Spirit. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit. We are swimming in Him. And yet we don't even recognize His presence when we leave these doors. And every single moment, 
is an opportunity to recognize him or to ignore him. To see him or to choose not to see him. What are we doing? The Holy Spirit. Some of you guys have quenched the Holy Spirit. It's like it's like it's like this. It's like um it's like you're at a campfire and you've set a fire and then you pour water on the fire when you leave that these buildings, this building. And then every time you come back, you're stoking those wet coals. But if you're burning and on fire out there, it's so much easier to fan it in here. But when we don't recognize him in our midst, everywhere that we go, in, the old, in, the, in those times, the people of Israel followed wherever the Spirit of God led them. And even now, today, the Spirit of God is tabernacling inside of us and is leading us by fire and by cloud. He is literally making all, He has made all the conditions perfect. With Jesus, there's, there are seasons, yes, but in every season, he expects us to be bearing fruit. Revival is this. Revival is when our purposes align with God's purposes. It's not, it's not spiritual heebie-jeebies. It's not, it's not... I feel like the presence of God is here. It's when humanity aligns itself with the purposes of God. The greatest revival that has ever happened was when Jesus walked this earth. And the alignment, the purposes of God and humanity were aligned and set straight. That was the greatest revival. But the craziest thing is the greatest revival was recognized by so few. Revival is happening all over the world. And what breaks my heart is this. Is that I used to think that every church was called to missions. And then I recognized that not every church is supposed to be reduplicated in the earth. Like, 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 uh, like, I know that if Jesus were to come into this church now, right here, right now, he would see fruit. And churches that he wants to be reduplicated in the earth, you know what he does? He puts a revival in their hearts and he aligns them to his purposes so they have a fire to go out. And when we become unaligned from his purposes, that mission's fervor dies. And why is that? To preserve his church. Jesus is preserving his church and expanding his church the way he wants his church to be expanded and preserved. And when we stop aligning ourselves with God and what he wants, immediately the passion for missions dies. Immediately the desire to see other people reach with the gospel dies. 
the temple in Jerusalem had to be cursed. That way of doing things had to be abolished. Because what was happening in Jerusalem, he didn't want being reproduced on the, in the rest of the world. But what he did in the New Testament church, he not only, he not only wanted it be reduplicated, he took someone that was an unbeliever from that old temple, and he used him as a mission sending agency to scatter the church in the earth. So what they had in Jerusalem might be scattered in all the earth. If you, have a, if, you, if you have a passion and a desire to see God, what God has done in you, reduplicated in somebody else's life, that's a very, very good place to be. But when you no longer desire other nations to see God, if, you're, if your faith is not worth sharing, it's a faith not worth having. As long as you have that desire to see other people come to Jesus, because all you see is Jesus, and all you want to see is Jesus in their lives, that is a very good place to be. And if you no longer want to see other people have Jesus, and you no longer have that fervor to see him glorified in other people's lives the same way that he's glorified in your life, it's a very dangerous place to be because it tells me something that God isn't looking to reduplicate you in other people. If you have that fervor tonight, praise God. And what I'm coming here to say is keep on keeping on. God loves the fruit you're producing. And for those who have set up a marketplace where worship ought to be, where you've compartmentalized God in these ways, and your worship is coming at the expense of other people's worship, the house that you are building, my friends, will crash with a mighty crash. Because it's not being built on Jesus. Took me a long time to get to this point here, guys, tonight. But I'm satisfied with the word that God has given me for you guys here tonight. I want to give you guys a chance to respond to that. Some of you guys, um, oh, the, I believe in the local church so much. I believe in Presbyterian churches, Anglican churches. I believe in Pentecostal churches, Baptist churches. I believe in Mennonites. I believe in Quakers. I believe in, I believe in all of them. I believe that there is a remnant in every single denomination that really, really loves God. But at the same time, the thing that breaks my heart is seeing so many people. All it is is a marketplace. 
And their worship is so distracted. So I want to do two things. There's some of you in this room that you know you're not bearing fruit and you know God is calling you to bear fruit. God has built you, has called you, is building you as a nation to bless other nations. You know it, but you're not seeing the fruit yet. Those people, I want you to come to the altar, okay? And I want you to say, God, please, I want to know you and I want to make you known. So all of life comes down to just two things, to know you, oh Jesus, and to make you known. And then the other group of people, you know God is using you. You have a desire. You are being act- you're actively being used by God now. I want you to take a knee at the seat you're in. And I want you to think of a church that maybe you came out of. Maybe you know. Maybe you visited. And you know that church is not bearing fruit. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's an Episcopalian church. I don't know. Maybe it's a Presbyterian USA church. I don't know. Maybe it's a United Methodist church. I don't know where you've come from. Maybe it's, maybe it's a Baptist church. Maybe it's even a Pentecostal church. But you know that church, all they care about is being blessed. All they care about is themselves. I don't want you to cast judgment on that church. I just want you to really call out to God and say, God, have mercy. Have mercy. God, please have mercy on my friends. Please have mercy on my relatives. Please have mercy on that church because they are not bearing fruit. The nations, they do not have the nations on their heart. God, I pray and I beg you, God, as a, as a purified Levite, I come before you and I am on meditation of who you are and knowing what you want in this earth. God, I will stand on their behalf interceding that they might come to life through Jesus Christ and that they might come alive in Jesus. And that their coming alive might not mean coming alive the way you came alive. It might mean coming alive, and they might even have different terms for it. They might not call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but they might have a second touch from God like, like William Booth had sitting in his rocking chair, just all of a sudden hit. He didn't even know it was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He didn't know that. But something in him changed and his heart broke and he had a second touch and he loved the world like he never loved it before. I want to pray for those people right now. Not We got to get over the, well, they're not serving Jesus like we're serving Jesus. We need to, we are, if we see them not serving God as we know God wants them to serve, Our hearts must go out and we must have the heart of Paul. I am willing, Jesus, 
If it means me not going as a substitute for them, so be it. But God, if there is any way, we need to be like Jesus, who came into Jerusalem at the, and the, in the trumpet entry and didn't rejoice but wept. So all he saw were people without a leader. If only he could gather them up in his wings. And I know that Jesus has that same heart for thousands of churches around this nation. And I know that Jesus is celebrating with many churches in this nation like he's celebrating with you guys. So two groups of people. If you know that God is calling you to bear fruit and you know that God's heart is for the nations, but your heart is not for the nations. Jesus, let me just say one more thing before we call everybody down here. Jesus is doing something in the earth. If, and this actually is his last, I'm like, This is almost as scary as Jesus walking into the temple. He calls us to go to all the nations. And as a last resort, he brings all the nations to us. The great American church is called to go to all the nations. And we've sent so many missionaries to so many nations. But we're losing that fervor and that heart as a whole. Don Reed said, if I was a young missionary looking to get into the mission field right now, with the state of most churches, I'd probably be very discouraged. And there are people who have slandered missions across this nation. American people, believers who slander missions. Why do we need to spend so much money sending people? Judas. Why is she pouring out that perfume? Look at all the good it could do. Why are people going on short-term missions trips? We could use that money so much wiser and better. Jesus Jesus, at the expense of our government, is bringing the nations to us. The church, so many churches, is, are unwilling to send missionaries with their money. So God is using a secular entity to bring the nations to us. If you think that the Arab Spring is a fluke, not God has ordained things from the beginning of time God used George W. Bush I truly believe this going into Iraq that was of God maybe not for the reasons we thought it was of God to overthrow a dictator but with every thing we do there's an unintended consequence when Iraqis were able to vote for the very first time in their nation's history, is sent shockwaves across the Middle East. 
And in every single nation, they wanted that same right and ability to vote. And across the Middle East, they've been thrown into the greatest turmoil that has ever rocked the 1040 window. They want to vote for people who America doesn't want to be their president. They want democratic elections and dictators said no. And clan against clan, faction against faction, sect against sect of Islam, tearing each other to pieces. Where is everybody going? God has set the world in motion in a way that no government can ever fix. I think sometimes we think that governments are intending for these things to happen. Europe, America never saw the waves of refugees that are coming to Europe. They never could have imagined that. I'm going to say this. The people that are coming, whether to the United States or to Europe, the bastions of Christianity are being given a choice to recognize God in their midst or to completely ignore it. To miss the greatest missions opportunity that the church has ever been given in history is now. And all the people that said, why should we spend money on this? God's given these people one-way tickets. And this is a crazy thing. They are literally giving their last penny to be smuggled into Christian countries. They are sacrificing everything they have so that for a chance at freedom. And they think freedom is living in Europe, but freedom is living in Jesus. Amen. They think that their lives will change because they're in America. And the most upsetting part about this is they come and they become completely disillusioned. Completely disillusioned because everything they hoped for did not happen. And then they go back to the Middle East as terrorists. We see this with ISIS. But if the church had been there and is there to meet them with open arms and inviting them into our homes and into our lives and loving them more than anybody else, we might be sending missionaries back to the Middle East and not terrorists. The Holy Spirit is judging the American church and our heart And I sense that we are failing miserably. Because when God is at work, and when God is doing something, and we've been praying that God send revival, send revival, send revival. But when the opportunity for revival happens, we have the opportunity to align our our lives to the will of God and to do the will of God And he's giving us every single opportunity to do that or we can reject it. Here's the scariest thing. God is bringing them to us, judging us, and we don't even know he's judging us. 
He is bringing, he said, go to the nations. And we are not go, and the, the church overall is not going. Then he says, you know what? I'm going to give them one last opportunity. Brings the nations to us. Are we recognizing it? You no longer have to you no longer have to spend thousands of dollars to go to another country. But he's calling us to do that in Turkey, in Tanzania. He's calling us to do that. But for those of us who maybe we don't have the financial liberty to do that right now, or may, he's brought Turks to Sugarland. He's brought Iraqis to Sugarland. He's brought Pakistanis to Sugarland. He's brought Afghanis to Sugarland. He has brought the nations here and now. They're everywhere. God will send some of you guys to the nations. Many of you to the nations. But for the rest of everybody else here, He's brought the nations to you so that way you might fulfill the Great Commission in ways you never could have expected. So if you want fruit in your life, come on up. If you know there is not fruit being produced from your life, or maybe you're seeing just a smidgen of fruit, maybe you're seeing yourself come into full bloom, but you know, you know, I'm out of alignment. And I want to be realigned. For everyone else, I've given you ample time to think of somebody, some church, group of believers who have died. And I want you to call out denominations because in every denomination, sure, there is a, there is a, a remnant that really, really loves Jesus. But as a whole, you know this denomination has gone so far.